Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Jordan Osterman and I'm your host for today. In my last interview with Chen Yang Wang, I inaugurated a new series for the podcast on psychoanalysis and time, and I'm excited to be bringing you our next episode today. Just to remind our listeners, I'm producing this series of interviews in collaboration with Waiting Times. Waiting Times is a multi-stranded research project that opens up the role of temporality within healthcare. The project is funded by the Wellcome Trust and takes place across Birkbeck, which is in the University of London, and the University of Exeter. And our co-PIs are Laura Salisbury and Lisa Beretzer, who we're going to speak to today. As for my own involvement on the project, I've recently joined as a postdoctoral researcher on a strand of the project called The Psychic Life of Time, based in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck. You can learn more about our project by visiting whataryouwaitingfor.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at whatiswaiting. For today's episode, we have a very special guest. Uh, as I just mentioned, one of the project leads for Waiting Times, Lisa Bracer. Lisa is Professor of Psychosocial Theory in the Department of Psychosocial Studies at Birkbeck and a psychoanalyst in practice in London, where she is a member of the British Psychoanalytical Society. She has published widely on time, gender, and care, and runs a research center dedicated to the interdisciplinary study of motherhood. Her first monograph, Maternal Encounters, The Ethics of Interruption, was published with Rutledge, and won the Feminist and Women's Studies Association Book Prize. And her second monograph, Enduring Time, published by Bloomsbury, will be the subject of our discussion today. Um, and just as an aside, I've, I've known Lisa since she taught me as a master's student in 2012. Um, and since then, we've had numerous opportunities to work together, most recently um, on this Waiting Times project. So it's a pleasure to be recording this interview, for once not over Skype, um, but face-to-face in the comfort of Lisa's home. So, Lisa, thank you so much for having me here and for joining us on the podcast. And can I just say straight from the outset how delighted I am to be doing this and to be supporting this new podcast on psychoanalysis and time. These are the two areas of my work at the moment that are most interesting and sort of tender in a way. So I'm really delighted to be doing this. That's, that's great to hear. So um, I think one of the things I said to you in our uh, meeting the other day, actually, um, is that as I was rereading this book, um, I realized that it almost functions as a kind of textbook for the Waiting Times project. Um, so could you begin by telling us a bit about how uh, the book project came about, and then maybe how you see it relating to Waiting Times as a whole? Mm. 
I mean, I think what's interesting about looking back at one's own work, and it was interesting for me to go back to the book, which was written a couple of years ago now, and in doing that, sort of think through the history, I suppose, of the accumulation of ideas and thoughts that have led to the book. I think what's painful to notice is that we tend to write the same book over and over again, in some ways circling around, for me at least, the same set of problematics that I feel each time I go around I make some kind of headway with and something slips out of the frame. And I guess my first book, Maternal Encounters, in some ways was an attempt to try to understand something about the relationship between time, interruption, care, motherhood and gender. And here I am now discussing Enduring Time, a second book that is actually trying to deal with very similar things. So there's something intransigent or difficult about that relationship that it seems to me we have to keep working away at. And it, it has, I think, to do with um, partly how do we live time at the moment? That's a big question, I think, for all of us on the Waiting Times Project. Are we living through a specific kind of temporal um, imaginary at the moment? Is it distinctive? Who's the we in that, that mm. we are living through? That's one sort of question. And I guess another question is, is something to do with care itself. What does it mean to care at the moment when, as we know, care often entails elongated, often durational, often arduous, sometimes very boring kinds of practices. But practices certainly that need time to flow or unfold. And it seems that there is perhaps a kind of hiatus going on around whether time is unfolding and flowing at the moment. And if it's not, then what does it mean about care? And somewhere in all of that, we have to address the fact that, for me at least, when we use the term care, we're always already referring to social practices and social practices that are structured. So they're structured clearly by gender and clearly by race. So I guess that's where the sort of nexus of ideas is, and I go on circling around that. Mm. And I guess once the book actually had come out, I, I had a sort of a bit of a eureka moment with my colleague Laura Salisbury. She's someone who I spent five years actually reading um, the contextual, historically sort of contextualised reading of Freud in a Freud reading group that together we'd set up at Birkbeck. Um, and of course got to the very end having supposedly read all of Freud and both of us sort of looked at each other and said it's time to start again we we, we sort of read it but we we need to read it all again but out of that experience we we had a sort of close working relationship and we we had a sort of eureka moment in which we both realised at a certain point that both of us in fact had been thinking about uh, elongated temporalities like waiting like enduring, like staying, like persisting like going on somehow, but Laura very much in the context of her work on modernity and in the context also of her work on Samuel Beckett. And I had been writing this book and I think we both sort of suddenly realised that the kind of discourse around what does it mean to wait for healthcare, not just for care in general, but for healthcare, had a particular resonance and salience at the moment, at a time when, you know, the NHS, as we know, is routinely narrativized as being in crisis or on its last legs or dying or about to collapse, these kinds of narratives. And I think we both wanted to think in a more complicated way about what these forms of temporal extension, this kind of relationship between something like waiting and something like care, might have to offer back 
to a discourse in which waiting is only ever a form of abandonment and an uncaring practice. Mm. We know that actually healthcare is absolutely seeped in different forms of offer, offering uh, elongated time mm. in order to do something we call caring. Mm. So before we go more into some of these issues that you touch on in the book, I think the listeners might actually be interested as well in your own kind of biography. Um, so I was wondering if you could touch a bit on your own career trajectory and kind of the various hats you hold and how that might have played into the writing of this book. I guess all of my working life, I've been interested in how, um, actually how we make things together. I, I would say that's actually what structures a lot of my thinking. And by that I mean what forms of generativity arise in collectivities or in relation. So what's the relation between generativity and relationality? So my, the first 10 years of my career actually was spent um, working in the theatre and in a, a kind of form of theatre in which uh, something got made together. And I was very interested in what kinds of working practices need to evolve in order to support one's capacity to make something anew, something that arises new in the world out of a nexus of relations. And I guess mothering is, you know, also one could think about mothering as a practice, if you like, of how to support the arrival and the growth and the generativity of something new in the world that is essentially a relational and collective practice. At the time uh, that I was um, thinking about the first book, um, I was working actually in a psychotherapeutic project. I had trained by then, I did an early training alongside the theatre work, and I was working in a project, um, it was a Department of Health funded project for mothers in psychological distress. And I noticed that mothers said something very specific. They tended to be mothers who'd had multiple forms of emotional physical and economic deprivation and were struggling with motherhood as one would in that situation and they said many times having children saved my life there are lots of ways we can understand and hear that phrase but I heard it as a kind of way in which a child might constellate a mother anew in other words these were women who were saying I now have a life in a way that I didn't feel I had a life before Mm. Be because of the way I'm constellated by this other we call a child. And so that led me to want to go into the university, back to the university, if you like, for the first time in my adult life, to say, I don't understand that phrase, and I want to try to think about that. Mm. And it happened at the time that I'd also had my own children, and so I was trying to understand the ways that a maternal subject arises, if you like, mm. um, out of what we might call a feminine subject, like Something new arises in the lives of women. And it's not just a child. It is a new form of subjectivity. Now, that idea is prob hugely problematic in the history of feminist thinking, mm -hmm. partly because of old debates about essentialism, but also because it's very hard to get hold of a maternal subject. She disappears in theory, in theoretical thinking, as one attempts to grasp her, because in some ways she is defined through her capacity to give form to life 
but to remain formless. We go right back to Plato and think about the Cora. So the history of Western philosophy is a history, if you like, of the maternal being a kind of principle that gives form to life, but doesn't take form. And so there have been numerous sort of um, debates and attempts to flesh out a subjectivity of her own, if you like, a maternal subject that can have a subjectivity of her own. And that's a difficult philosophical thing to grapple with. And in the history of psychoanalysis, it has its own, uh, the maternal subject also comes in and out of focus as various figurations. She's there to be left, for example, as Irma Berman said famously, or in Kristeva's work, you know, that there are lots of articulations of the ways that mothers, in a way, disappear at the point that they appear. So I was concerned with how to sort of write the maternal subject back into being um, through that early work. So that left me in the academy, <laughs> stranded after, as you were talking about career trajectories. But I guess I then became interested in academic practice. So if, if I'm thinking about practices of making collectively the theatre and then this work psychotherapeutically that led me into the academy, then of course I became very interested in teaching and researching collectively and what it is that we can make anew out of that um, situation. And then you ended up in a department of psychosocial studies um, where you've sort of um, written about a bit actually in this book, um, the kind of the question of what psychosocial studies might be and what it has to do with time. And the idea um, you write in one of the chapters about it being a field that is interested in kind of reanimating ideas that might be thought of as anachronistic. So could you say a little bit about the field of psychosocial studies as well as what you're trying to say about it in the book? Yeah. I mean, I think that's another example of this kind of attempt to understand how something new can arise um, out of a field of study or a field of practice. You know, social psychology is already bedded in and has its own um, uh, genealogies, its own histories, its own authors, its own canon, and so on, And as does the field of psychology and the field of sociology. And psychoanalysis has hovered around in all of those fields in a kind of, um, it's like an ambivalently attached to object, I think. I think it's pulled into focus at certain times in academic thinking, especially, for example, Lacan became very important in people's thinking uh, in the sort of post-structuralist moment, and then it gets pushed out again. And, and you know, you see Klein making an appearance and pushed out again, and Winnicott being useful to think certain things through and pushed out again. So... I think there were a group of us in a social psychology department, basically, in psychology at Birkbeck, who became very interested in re-articulating again what psychoanalysis might have to offer to think about the relation between psychic and social life. Um, at a time when to engage with psychoanalysis was really very unfashionable and in some ways suspect in the academy. Not, didn't have a lot of valency. And I think that process allowed me to think more clearly about anachronism, like what does it mean to work with embarrassingly out-of-date concepts and ideas? Concepts and ideas that sort of science, for example, the psychological sciences, has absolutely left behind. And in the book, actually, I turn to the work of Michel Serre, the French philosopher, to try to think about contiguity and the ways that ideas um, that are seen to be out-of-date which actually requires one to have an idea about what the now means, that somehow the now is always in date. 
Mm. He questions that idea. What does it mean for the now to be in date? And he thinks about what it might mean for ideas that are radically out of date to come back into some kind of contact with contemp- contemporary ideas and reanimate a conversation or a connection. Mm. He uses this wonderful idea about the, the, the baker kneading dough. Yeah. Yes, the idea of time that actually folds in on itself and gets reworked, time itself gets reworked in that process, not just the concepts. Mm-hmm. And that was a very helpful idea for me to think about, kind of model, if you like, for what psychosocial studies might mean. What does it mean to found to sort of uh, seed a new field at the moment, to claim it's new, when so clearly all of its resources are drawn from other literatures, mm-hmm. you know, sort of histories of thinking about the relationship between internality and externality. We can go to Immanuel Kant for, you know, for the beginnings of those kinds of thoughts. So it was important to me to have a sort of way of understanding how to be in a field that was claiming to be new, whilst it was actually dealing with, rightly so, the contiguity between new and very old ideas. And I think in the book I try to to work that through particular concept, that of psychic reality, mm. that even in psychoanalysis to some degree falls out of currency, but is brought back into currency through the work of Judith Butler, where she sort of tries to think about Freud and Foucault as having a relation to one another, to think the human subject. It's a very difficult thing to do. That's not an obvious connection in some ways. And so I use what she's done as a model for thinking about the field of, of the psychosocial Right, and you kind of describe that as a process of, of needing, using that kind of Michael Sarah's idea itself, right? Yeah, because I think what the book is partly trying to do is to try to understand what it might mean for time not to be in motion, or time and motion to be uncoupled from one another. So forms of stuck time, basically. Mm. So time that... Um, is felt at least to be unbearably sluggish, not just slow, but not moving on at all. And so I wanted to use Ceres's idea to think about, um, in that instance, time that doesn't flow as such, but still one can make a relation between past time and current time and possibly even future time through this kind of topology that he offers mm. us. So the way in which times might touch one another and affect one another, but not through the historical flow of time. Mm. There's this great anecdote you have in the book about um, going to an Ikea. <laughs> Do you remember this bit? And, uh, and seeing a daybed that resembles a psychoanalytic couch. And you say something about what this moment kind of, well, you reflect on what this moment might have meant. And um, it seems to play a role in also thinking about um, what psychoanalysis is doing in the book. So I wonder if you could say a bit about that. <laughs> well, I'll count the anecdotes. I think probably everyone's <laughs> Sorry, yeah. yeah. So I keep the sort of bastion of melamine, I think I say in the, in the book. So, you know, we often find ourselves having to provision, um, especially if you have children. And so this kind of experience of going to IKEA is an ubiquitous experience. Um, but it's very interesting what, the experience of going through Ikea is like because the, the spaces are laid out like rooms that are recognisably rooms where we go into one of the spaces and we recognise it to be a bathroom and so we look at ourselves in the mirror and perhaps imagine brushing our teeth or whatever it is and you move into the into the space that is the bedroom you know and there's this kind of like 
if you have children with you, often they'll bounce on the beds and they'll, they'll do things that, in which they recognise that this is a bedroom, even though we know that we're in Ikea. Mm. And then in the lounge, there's often this kind of day bed, some kind of something that resembles a couch. And I was struck going around one day that people seemed to recognise what it was. That is, they lay down on it mm. and, you know, joked about telling somebody their dreams or um, recounting some kind of childhood memory or something. And I, I was very struck by how psychoanalysis is an anachronistic practice. Very few people continue to practice five times a week couch-based analysis in its most traditional form. I'm one of them and the people in the British Institute do, but it's a very small part of mental health provision, for example, going on in the UK at the moment. I mean, small, I mean infinitesimally small. And yet um, it remains in the cultural imaginary as something of some kind of significance and is in fact supported by a multiple sort of set of relations, if you like, that for that to be a readable gesture for someone to lie down on that couch and joke about telling a dream, Mm -hmm. it requires the maintenance of an idea of psychoanalysis, even as psychoanalysis as a daily practice might have fallen into some form of dereliction. And that, to me, is a kind of metaphor, I suppose, for these forms of maintaining and, in some ways, taking care of time itself. That is, of these practices that I'm calling anachronistic, but how they themselves are maintainable at times when it they feel uh, distant or to have no valency. So, in some ways, I'm interested in practices that take care of things. Mm. I want to read um, just the titles of the chapters of the book. They are Staying, Maintaining, Repeating, Delaying, Enduring, Recalling, Remaining, and Ending. Um, and this is a kind of refrain also that you um, you kind of reference these terms in the introduction a number of times and talk about them as different um, forms of temporality and, and kind of forms of, um, of enduring time, I suppose, that you're interested in. So... How did you come up with this list? And um, I guess, what, how did you, what's its role in the kind of structure of the book and your own thinking? Mm. I mean, as always, I think, or someone like me works a bit the other way around. So um, I tend to stumble on things in the world that uh, are enigmatic to me and I want to try to understand a bit better. And so I actually ended up co- collecting a kind of archive, if you like, of what I call sort of cultural objects that seemed to speak to me in some kind of way about some form of endurance and persistence, but that I didn't quite know how to make sense of. So I start with the object. And those objects in this book are basically artworks. Um, some of them are social artworks, but I think, the, if you like, they're kind of case studies. But I, I work with the writings, for example, of Denise Riley, so a poet whose adult son has died and who is articulating something about what happens to time when someone dies in the way that it becomes kind of crystalline but not dead. The the title is Time Lived Without Its Flow. Yeah, so this is a a poem, really, that um, it's a book, it's a poetic book that Denise Riley wrote after the death of her adult son. So that's one sort of object that I was very curious about. And then I was sort of interested in the photography of Richard Billingham, who's somebody whose work I encountered as a young adult and was Mm. deeply shocked and in some ways offended by and upset by, you know, his very affective work, 
photographs of his family living in absolute abject conditions of poverty mm. in the Midlands in the early 1990s. And what he does with those photographs in terms of uh, making family and making family time. So it was another sort of bit of the archive. I was very interested in the work of um, Merle Adamon Ukeles, who is a performance artist, I guess, who was one of the first people to change nappies in the art gallery and was very interested in, uh, I guess, what has been relegated to be women's work, historically dusting, literally maintaining the art gallery, who gets to clean the vitrines, and then ended up um, spending decades as the artist-in-residence in the New York sanitation department. And, and she remains the official unpaid artist in she residence, does. is that right? Yeah. yeah, so it's a kind of extraordinary body of work which we can come back to. Um, and so on. So there are a number of different case studies in the book that seem to me to speak to experiences of uh, care, uh, relationality, and a form of endurance that led me to try to think about, I don't know, the the times we, in inverted commas, are living in, and whether there was a relation between this kind of um, stuckness of time or suspension of time that these objects seem to be able to speak to and a more general sense of time and what the relation in all of that to care might be. Mm. So really, I suppose, the um, tropes, these temple tropes, Staying, waiting, persisting, delaying, repeating, returning, uh, ending, are um, attempts at articulating something that comes actually from these objects. I think these objects um, stage mm. in some ways. I mean, I think none of them on first glance sound like forms of time that anyone wants to experience. <laughs> That's a really interesting observation. Um. I suppose that's the question, isn't it? I think they are often forms of time that feel um, obdurate and extremely difficult to bear. But they are quotidian forms of time. Anyone who's spent time with young children, day after day after day, will know that this is how time is when you have young children. Anyone who's incarcerated, and there's a chapter on the book around solitary confinement, but very extreme, extended, you know, someone who spent 42 years in solitary confinement, this, this, that time miraculously and through enormous courage was endured. Um, I suppose the process of coming to an understanding politically of having belonged to a political generation that can't be grasped at the time and can only be grasped after the event. It's very painful. And I work with Louisa Passerini's book, mm. The Autobiography of a Generation, to try to think about political and personal time and the delay involved in becoming part of a political generation. It's an extremely painful experience to, to look back at a political moment and have to think about what was managed, what was successful, and of course, in most political moments, what hasn't been achieved. And so I suppose they are forms of time, as you say, that have to be endured, but are endured. They're just, they just are. They are lived. Mm. There's, I think you make a real kind of argument for an ethical dimension to, to this as well, in terms of um, you kind of say, you suggest that you want to distance yourself from theories of time that emphasize rupture or dramatic change, um, and that there's something um, 
ethically vital about uh, being attentive to these forms of time. Could you say something more about that? I'm going to do a bit of a kind of um, <laughs> sort of bright, very broad brushstroke attempt in the beginning of the book to sort of delineate some uh, trajectories, I guess, in political theory over the last, say, 15 or 20 years towards different ways of understanding how social change, political change comes about. And one, I suppose, is the kind of theory of the event that comes through Alain Badiou's work, mm-hmm. which I'm very interested in and curious about and uh, written about in other work. And the other is the philosophy of becoming that comes through Deleuze, Deleuze's work largely. And I suppose, for me, they are forms of boys' theory. That's a difficult thing to say. But what I'm, I mean by that is um, they are theoretical trajectories that give primacy, if you like, to um, change happening through some form of uh, motion, movement. And I am interested in exactly these practices of change that happens through the impossibility of moving on. And I think they are deeply bound up with what has been assigned to women as women's work. They're deeply bound up with practices that include the temporality of repetition. And repetition itself has a long, important, theoretical uh, set of articulations in feminist theory, and particularly in particular also in queer theory and in recent work around slavery, colonisation and empire. Mm. The temporalities of repetition and what can be let go of and moved on from and what simply can't. So important theoretical contribution that I borrow in the book is from Christina Sharp, whose, I think, book um, in the wake has, has proven extremely fertile, if you like, fruitful piece of work for many people because she articulates so clearly and so painfully what it means to get hold of the idea that we all live in the wake of slavery and actually the ethical task is to go on living in its wake, that is knowing that that is what we do, that we're none of us outside of those um, frameworks. And I suppose I'm interested in the ethics then of going on and noticing that going on itself is a form of both change and care. And I suppose that might well take us to psychoanalysis because one needs then a theoretical articulation of how that really works. And I suppose psychoanalysis does offer us a resource for thinking at least about psychic change as having a relation to time, especially the time of repetition. We can go into the different offers that psychoanalysis makes in terms of thinking about time, psychic life and change, but also, oddly, a practice that could loosely be thought about as care. Mm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Really interesting, actually. It would be nice to talk a bit about how this um, might be theorized within psychoanalysis because um, I guess there is a kind of tension, actually, if you look at, for example, potentially some of these so-called boys theorists, the mm-hmm. Lacanian um, kind of emphasis on this idea of the act or the cut or a kind of radical rupture mm-hmm. um, as some kind of break within um, the long kind of... Uh, time span of psychoanalysis versus mm. um, I think something else that you might be trying to emphasize here in mm. the book. Yeah, I mean, the obvious sort of um, extension, supplementation to that Lacanian cut would come from Bracha Etica's work, actually. I suppose what I've drawn from it that's important to me is an idea that, of course, the subject cannot emerge other than through some form of loss, castration, cut, whatever, however you want to articulate it. But that process of differentiation is supplemented by something else. She calls it sexual difference, actually. But what she means by that is that there is prior, we could say prior or alongside, I'm not sure exactly. For her, it's figured as prior because she uses the late stage of interuterine life as her model, although I don't think she's just talking about the materiality of pregnancy. But the idea that there is a co-affecting co-emerging subject and not yet subject in terms of what is the entity, if you like, in the late interuterine period, the not yet mother and the not yet child, if you like, come into being through this, Call it. she calls it border linking, but let's think of it as a space, really, a space-time of withness, she calls withness. And so in a way, she's saying there's a profound experience of hospitality prior to the cut that we can't be severed from. We don't lose it. It is maintained and remains as the capacity for transsubjectivity in later life. Mm. So that to me is a very important thing, the permanence of the non-severance of the self from the other as an element of psychic life that is structuring it's as structuring as the other primal fantasies, castration, seduction, primacy. In a way, she supplements that Lacanian model with another scene, mm. which is what she calls the matrixial. Now, that seems important to me, the supplementation, because it offers us something we never lose. And of course, I'm interested in these permanent states of connection that work alongside the necessity for separation. Mm. And so it fleshes out, if you like, a a kind of um, broader, more generous, more Mm. generative, you could say, theory of psychic life. Mm. I don't know if you use this term in the book, actually, but it makes me think of the psychoanalytic concept of holding. Mm. The Winnicottian concept. Yeah, the Winnicottian yeah. concept, yeah. 
I think the thing about the Winnicottian concept is that holding comes in at the moment that Winnicott offers us the idea of falling. Mm. Yeah, that there is a primary, I think, I'm not a Winnicottian expert, but I understand it to be a primary experience of um, annihilation prior to the ego even forming. That holding, in a way, comes to allow the ego to become nascent. And I suppose Ettinger's model is that in the beginning, if you like, is not annihilation. In the beginning is withness. Interuterine life is an experience of coming into being, always already in the presence of another, and that other is always already feminine. Mm. Yeah, we are still more or less gestated in bodies that may come to signify mm. as feminine. So that is a slightly different idea, I think. Mm, yeah. It's a different substrata yeah, yeah. to psychic life from holding that does something with falling. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this is not a, a, a traditionally clinical book, but do you think that this perspective has some implications for clinical psychoanalytic practice? Um, I think we'd have to move away from Ettinger uh, because I wouldn't want to sort of promote uh, the book is not dealing centrally with that mm. as the model. I suppose and maybe the kind of the themes in the book as a whole, rather. Yeah, I, I think what I think the clinical contribution that the book tries to make is it tries to understand the different sort of strands of psychoanalytic time. So memory, memory being what. We, what is laid down that we're not severed from, working through, which is the form of time and psychoanalysis, which is about, if you like, approaching um, what we're resistant to knowing about again and again, if you like, with no memory or desire. So this repetitive capacity to go on again and again, sort of through periods of stagnation, but with an acceptance, and Chris David sort of articulates it like this, of the drives although they're repressed by the transference, still being sort of um, at work. And then the psychoanalytic time that's about the dissolution of the transference, which is about the ending of an analysis. Mm. And at the end of the book, I try to think about those three forms of psychoanalytic time in relation to Freud's very late paper, uh, Analysis Terminable, Interminable. And I think he does something in that paper that's really difficult and interesting, he reminds us that there's always the bedrock that can't get worked through, that is the death drive and the repudiation of femininity in both men and women. And then he introduces this odd concept of psychic inertia. Mm. And psychic inertia sort of plays a role in that, pa- in that paper, that late paper, I think, as a way to remind us that despite the bedrock, what an analysis can do is help us to veer actually away from the interminable and back towards chronic time. And by that I mean, if the interminable is a form of the absolute impossibility of working through, then I think an analysis is about actually not, we can't work through what can't be worked through. So analysis in a way, I think, offers the possibility of some kind of return to 
elements of those three kinds of time, memory, working through, and the dissolution of the transference in the face of the impossibility of the death drive and the repudiation of femininity. Mm. And what I do with that at the end of the book is I try to think about um, chronicity, the chronic, what an analysis can offer, as a form of the permanent capacity in all of us of beginning again. Mm. of something new coming into existence. We think about my trajectory of my career, what it is that I've been thinking about all along. That there is a sort of, if you like, permanent non-severance from the capacity to begin again, which in some ways is a philosophy of natality. It links to, to Arendt's work mm. as opposed to, say, to Heidegger's work, or being towards death. Mm. And I think that is a kind of, I don't know, when you think about clinically, it's a kind of clinical model, you might say, or something that one might hold in mind as to what an analysis is doing. Mm. You you mention, uh, you reference in the last chapter an analyst who is asked what happened in mm. this analysis that you've concluded, and um, it, they say, I, I, I'll need some more time to say, I don't know, and it, it had been two years since the analysis had concluded. Mm. Do you say a bit about what, what you're doing with that? Yeah. Well, I suppose what I took from <laughs> that quote was something like, what happened? And I think I repeat that a couple of times in the last chapter. Yeah. What happened here? That there's something that needs to be thought about again, that we need to go round the round again, that there's something about care that involves repetition to go round again. And I'm trying to say, I guess, that that going round again has a number of different iterations in psychoanalysis. One of them would be obviously working through. One of them would be the return of the repressed. One of them would be the death drive, the repetitiveness of those kinds of processes. And I think what I'm proposing is something I end up naming in the book as the maternal death drive. So in other words, how else can we think about repetition? That is, what happened? Our capacity to think again, what happened? So the non-closure at the end of an analysis in ways that neither suture repetition to the bedrock of the death drive. In other words, oh my goodness, this is unworked through. It's an unworked through ending. Mm. Or return repetition to the place it often gets returned to, which is a kind of negative association with women's work, yeah? with the boring, arduous work of simply maintaining the next generation, maintaining the household. So in what way might you like the end of an analysis steer its way through that, those two poles? And I offer this idea of, of a maternal death drive as a way to think about repetition that includes with it, within it the maternal principle, that is the unfolding of one life in relation to the unfolding of another. We think about the maternal as that but still bound by, if you like, the law of repetition. So it's a, it's, a, it's a death drive. The ending of an analysis needs to deal with the fact that the analysis is ended and you live on, if you like, beyond the life of the analysis. If you like, psychically beyond the life of your analyst. Mm. Yeah, so it needs to deal with ending, but perhaps there's a way to think about that ending in a different way. Mm. Yeah that I call the maternal death drive, which is a kind of repetitiveness 
but in the name of beginning anew. Is that making more sense? Mm, yeah, yeah. Do you have a favourite case study? It's <laughs> uh, um, a good question. I have a case study that I find unbearable still to read because it is an unbearable situation, which is the case study about Herman Wallace mm. and so this is a political prisoner, Black Panther, in prison for 42 years in solitary confinement in an American jail in Angola. Um, and an extraordinary artwork that he and the artist Jackie Sumel made together over a 12-year period, which is called The House That Herman Built, which is an imaginary house for Herman to live in. And to some degree, he did live in in his imagination through those years of solitary. And um, it's a very important piece of political work that he and Jackie do together. Um, But it requires going on knowing about what I think is impossible to know about, which is a kind of situation of permanent torture. It's torture without end. It's punishment without end, in fact, without ending. And a lot of the work in the book is about trying to say, are these practices of care, for example, going on knowing about what happens when someone lives in solitary confinement, not for 14 days or 20 days, which is supposed to be the UN's suggestion that beyond that is torture, Mm. not for a year or even 20 years, but for 42 years, to go on knowing about permanent torture requires a form of care that actually is about going on knowing about what's impossible to know about. And I suppose that's the sort of case study in the book that is, I think, the most painful, Mm. the most difficult to read about. Yeah, absolutely. To think about. And what what do you think you learned from visiting that case study and kind of studying it so intensely? Well, it's impossible to think about that situation outside of its particular political valency so I learnt about race I learnt about the forms of punishment that racialization is and how brutal and sustained it is and I guess something that Jackie taught me really which is that I tried to write a book that wasn't about hope that wasn't holding out a horizon of hope to counter an horizon of stuckness mm. And I think that she's right in the end to say you have to embrace the politics of hope, actually, even as theoretically you might want to undo that. Mm. You know, that you feel theoretically what you're trying to do is to describe forms of time precisely that are not hopeful in their orientation. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're not orientated towards the future. In fact, that's what defines them as kinds of times that you're thinking about as careful. But I think Jackie pushes against that, and ethically she's completely right, Mm. completely right. I I remember um, you had uh, said in a discussion earlier about, there's a bit in the book where you talk about um, Jeremy Corbyn, about the (laughs) politics of hope, and um, how he kind of uh, reanimated a political project that some might see as quite old. Um, but I recall you saying that your publisher warned you you might not want to put this in the book depending on the results of the general election. Um, and uh, now the general election has come and gone and Corbyn has kind of witnessed a, a, a massive defeat. Um, but uh, you said at the time to your publisher, it's precisely the point whether he wins or loses that you yeah. want to put that in the book. Yeah. I think something, I mean, I was 
not my own politics, but I think something very, very important happened regardless of the outcome in Corbyn, whatever Corbyn signifies, but Corbyn's capacity to um, be prepared, if you like, to do the work that Michelle Serres is talking about, which is to put back into circulation a, a lexicon, a set of terms, concepts and ideas that had become embarrassingly out of date. I think it's extraordinary now that we're living at a time in which people can quite casually talk about the renationalisation of the railways, mm. as if that's something that is desirable and possible, which of course it, both of those things are. And 10 years ago, I, mean, I think that was in, impossible to even think about. It was laughable. It was embarrassing. It was anachronistic and out of date. And I think those are a very, very important legacy of the sort of shift away from sort of... Uh, accepted lexicon of the left. Mm. I mean, there'll be a lot of American listeners who'll be thinking about this as well in the context of uh, the Democratic primaries and the presidential election coming up there. And, um, you know, interestingly, this, this uh, a similar thing that was unspeakable was this idea of universal health care in America. Um, but I suppose one of the things I was wondering about is it, it seems as if one thing that Corbyn represented to a lot of people um, and this may or may not become the case with Bernie Sanders as well, is uh, is this, yeah, this glimmer of hope and then um, a crushing defeat um, and um, and raising again this question of, well, what's the point of hope? Um, because something gets preserved that's taken care of in each iteration of that. Mm. In a way, that's what, if you like, the case study around um, Herman Wallace is about. It's about practices that keep for safekeeping ideas and ideals and hopefulness in fact at times that it's not possible to activate mm. those processes but they need to be kept safe nevertheless and so I feel as hopeless as I'm sure you do about the crushing defeat but I think that's the time when it's most important to take enormous care over what it is that has been established, re-established, as embarrassingly out of date, that is actually completely efficacious and vital, that is again in that moment of defeat shamed, utterly shamed, and humiliated, and chucked, you know, the danger is it gets chucked out again. And those are the moments when I think this careful practice that I'm trying to talk about taking care of time is the most vital thing to do. Mm. It, it, it also makes me think of the case study you have of Richard Billingham. Mm. Um, and I was really struck by how, <clears throat> I suppose, um, I wonder if you could just say something about what, what you got out of his artwork, because you were kind of looking at these uh, photographs, which um, could be quite difficult to look at, uh, kind of depict enormous poverty and deprivation. Um, but um, it was uh, there was something um, not necessarily hopeless that uh, I think you, you seem to find in them, and that the artist himself also articulates mm. in, in his own uh, discussions about mm. them. I mean, I completely agree with him. You know, his interest is to take a beautiful picture. And I think they're beautiful pictures, so that's the kind of bottom line in a way. Um, I'm really interested in that project, partly because it's something that really took time. So, you know, Richard Billingham starts photographing his parents and his brother um, 
just after I think he comes back from art school and has very little money and he's using very expedient kind of um, film and just getting it uh, um, processed at kind of uh, a, a local place that does it. There's no sort of architecture, if you like, of artistry in there. But he goes on, I think, over you know six or seven years photographing his family. And I think there's something about that as a social practice that he keeps in touch with them. And he sort of, as I said before, sort of he, he seems to make family out of that practice of looking and noticing, even if what he is noticing is the stain on the wall or his father sort of um, covered in vomit or um, his mother's wonderful floral dress. All of those elements, if you like, become... Um, related to one another as elements of family, that is, of a fundamental connection that one can't rid oneself of, however much one would like to, that was sort of caught in relational webs, a very simple idea, that are meaningful and that require a kind of maintenance, if you like, to remain um, functioning. And, you know, it's very easy to read those photographs as a depiction of a dysfunctional family, and I'm sure in many ways it, it, it was, and perhaps to live in it was very difficult and painful. But in a, another way, it's clearly a functioning family. That is, it is a family that maintains its relations to one another, mm-hmm. partly through the very practice that he's doing, which is to take these photographs. I was very interested, and, in, you know, originally they were um, put together in an artist's book, I suppose the point about a book is you can't, you have to hold an image in your mind as you turn the page. Mm-hmm. And if you want to go back, you can do, but you actually can't see the images side by side. Mm-hmm. So there's something also about the sort of temporality of being asked to hold something in mind in order to make a connection between one image and the next image, which is a certain kind of labour, certain kind of work, which I call in that chapter maintenance, because that's what I think it is. It's, it's, it's labour, it's work to maintain familial connections. And I find that very beautiful mm. in that work. Do you think, that it seems like there's something of a kind of um, psychoanalytic sensibility, perhaps, that you bring towards approaching that artwork and, and the other case studies in the book. Do you think that's right? Mm. I think to the degree that I kind of come to it with some kind of open, free-floating attention. Like, I'm curious. I think there's something going on, but I don't yet know what it is. And so I guess there's a sort of way in which I am uh, listening and thinking. And at a certain point, I guess, I try to say what might be in my mind. Mm. That process, I suppose, which one might use to describe an analytic sensibility, Mm. um, I think is at work in the way that I work. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found that that was also kind of the experience of, of reading it, is a kind of, um, it's not a traditional book. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I wonder if you could say something about actually the methodology, um, mm. because it is, um, it's, it's in some sense, it's quite impressionistic, but at the same time, it's also quite theoretically rigorous. Mm. I mean, I think in... Quite a lot of what I do, there's a point in which I 
I feel there's something very urgent that needs to be worked out. And I don't think one should write a book unless there's something at stake in it. That means something that's, that is constellating something in oneself. So something is being worked out or worked through in the writing of a book, which is why I think we probably do tend to write the same books over and over again. So for me, um, the sort of philosophical or theoretical parts of the book are as important as anything else because I don't understand something and I'm trying to work something through. And I'm sort of grabbing, if you like, at whatever I can. So Bergson makes an appearance and Agamben makes an appearance and, you know, Serres makes an appearance as a completely different, you know, kind of tradition and then some bits of psychoanalysis and, and so we go through. And so it's very eclectic in that way because I have a problem I'm trying to find out how to handle and deal with. But at the same time, I have a tendency to throw myself off the subject, you know, that I want to be on the subject and try and work it out. And at the same time, I sort of know in, instinctively that that won't be where the answer lies. The answer will come through experience. And so the experience of being with the artworks is the way that I then try to deviate mm. almost deliberately from the closure, I suppose, of philosophical discussion. Mm. And so I suppose the, the book is some kind of, I think, rather messy or tense um, shuttling between, as you say, this kind of very intensive moments of trying to say, yeah, but what is time? <laughs> what does it mean to have time or to run out of time? Or why do we always feel running out of time? What is, you know, messianic time? What, what, what does, you know, chronos mean? Like, what, what are these terms? How do we understand the lived experience of time in all of its complexity? And then there are these moments where I'm very, very, uh, I feel it's very important to be in the everyday. But none of that will make sense unless we're tracking the quotidian. The ordinary, messy, everyday business. So in a way, the book is like the same distraction of mothering. Like, how do you write a book while you're trying to mother? Mm. Well, you have to theorise interruption, otherwise you're not going to get anywhere <laughs> get off the starting blocks, unless you're going to hand your child over to someone else. So in a way, it's a working practice mm. that arises, I think, out of interrupted lives, whether those are women's lives or uh, lives of, of many people, lives of people living in poverty or racialised life, where you're not able, you're not given the luxury of thinking something through over time. Mm. Yeah, you're constantly being thrown off the subject or interrupted or broken into in some kind of way in your thoughts. Mm. So it's a practice that emerges, I suppose, out of kind of necessity that I try to make something of. That, uh, I know we're almost out of time, but mm. that just makes me think, I mean, one of the things um, about that is, you know, I guess on first glance, um, one might want to live a life in which such interruptions are, are minimized or are um, less difficult to bear. And yet um, it seems to be what you're saying is actually that there's something um, quite important about the types of thinking and um, the generative aspects of this type of interruption. And, and it connects a bit as well, I think, to this question of waiting times, um, which is a really tricky thing. I know all of us are um, attempting to navigate at different moments, which is how could you possibly say that there's anything worthwhile about the idea of waiting when it comes to healthcare? Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I wonder if you could say something. <laughs> kind of uh, visiting these things that seem kind of th- th- that most people think need to be fixed or done away with mm. um, and saying, well, maybe there's another way of looking at it. Mm. 
I mean, I wouldn't want to valorize the sort of um, forms that interruption take too quickly. I mean, it's painful and irritating and upsetting to be interrupted all the time, both in terms of a whole life project, to think about Elizabeth Pavanelli's work, thinking about what it means to be constantly thwarted, basically, in a life project for reasons that uh, could be fixed, actually, mm. that are to do with the way that this late stage of capitalism is working. Mm. So I, I wouldn't want to valorise that. These are pain, painful lives. And I, I think it's difficult, as you say, to make the argument that we shouldn't it's not about shouldn't, but that one wouldn't want to aim primarily to reduce unnecessary waiting in relation to care. You know, if you're waiting for care and you are in pain, you are in a state of anxiety, you uh, you need treatment and you have to wait for it, it's simply an agony. So there's no way that one would want to deny that. But if we really drill down to what we understand by care, including many forms of health care, then they just do require waiting. I mean, the care itself. However well-funded the, the healthcare system yeah. is. Or I mean, however. mental health treatment, like we're talking about psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy or forms of treatment of depression and anxiety that simply mm. need the offer of time, a kind of bounded time, but nevertheless an unfettered time. An interval of time is more or less what the treatment is. It is punctuated by what we think of as the interpretation. But it is a willingness of someone again and again, reliably, to sit with you. Mm. Yeah, that's what therapy is. So how you know how how come we can't value that and make time for it? And you know, as you know, in the project, the other sites are general practice, which has become um, more and more about managing chronic conditions and unexplained medical symptoms. This is the majority of of GPs' work. I mean, so most people don't go to the GP and get a quick response and not have to go back. Most of us have to go back and go back again, and so we build up a relationship, and it's the offer of somebody who's there thinking and with the door open and prepared to do that again and again and again in those chronic situations. That is what care is. So, uh, you know, and as, as you know, the end of, end of life is another really good example of ways in which nothing is going to be cured. If you're in a hospice situation, you're outside of the realm of cure. You're in another realm in which time, having time, takes on a completely different meaning. So I think um, a lot of what we're trying to do is to make visible what is already there, which is that there's some forms of time one would want to reduce, some forms of waiting one would want to reduce. But there are other forms of waiting one would want to really try and increase, Mm. to have more therapeutic (laughs) would be a good thing, a really good thing. But to do that, we have to understand that that you know, therapy is a treatment of giving time to a situation, mm. part of it. Okay, well, we've run out of time. Um, just before we finish, though, uh, a kind of traditional final question on new books in psychoanalysis is, um, what is your next book project that you're working on? I'm working on a collaborative book a co-written book with a number of different health practitioners about waiting and care in their very busy and stretched lives. 
where I may be able to bring some of this kind of thinking and theoretical sort of underpinning around questions of elongated temporalities, their histories, uh, their meanings, into a dialogue with those who are working at the front line in situations where they feel often they are both pressed for time, don't have enough time, and time is always running out, and yet are compelled and want to be making an offer of time in the ways that we've just described. Mm. So collaborative making of something new um, around those questions of care and waiting. Mm. Another book about the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for uh, appearing on the podcast with us today, Lisa. Thank you, Jordan. It was a real pleasure. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.